0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Goodwill Hunting from 1997, directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, Minnie Driver, Stellan Skarsgård, and Robin Williams. However quickly before we get to the show next week we will be covering my sister Allison's favorite movie with her for her birthday Mary Poppins from 1964 directed by Robert Stevenson written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. You won't want to miss that one so watch ahead of the show by searching the real good app to find where it's streaming for you that's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatest all time movie podcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmote Podcast. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. With that, Dad, let's turn our attention to Goodwill Hunting. What is your relationship
1: to this movie? I heard about it and I knew a lot about it when it came out, but it was about a time when. You guys were all small, so we didn't get out to the movies very much. I watched the Academy Awards and saw the best uh, or screenplay award going to Damon and Aflac. Um, when it was released, ultimately, on video, I mean, we went and, and rented it. This would be VHS yet, I believe.
0: Yeah, this would be just before the advent of the DVD, probably a couple of years. I think DVDs started to become more popular about... 2000 2001 kind of in that era and this is obviously a few years before that I can't remember the first time that I watched this movie but I've probably seen it now some 50 times it's just been a movie that I think I don't think I watched it till probably after high school so this might have even been something I watched in college but probably for the last 10 years or so. This is probably one of those movies that I've seen once or twice a year, if not more, just pretty much every year. And so I have no problem watching this movie. I watched it on the plane while we were on our way for vacation this, I don't know, past couple of weeks, probably about three or four weeks ago. And then I just watched it again because I felt "Eh, maybe three weeks is not good enough to be able to have a full refresher on this movie. And I have to say, This movie has always appealed to me because I see a lot of myself in Will Hunting. Obviously, I'm not a mathematician or math god. It doesn't come quite that easily to me, although I didn't have a problem in college or high school all that much with math, save for statistics. Yes, I will own myself on that one. But I think where I see myself is many people have told me for years that My possibilities for life are endless, and yet I struggle consistently getting over the fear of knowing all the roadblocks ahead of me to actually accomplish the things I feel I should be doing. So I think, frankly, that the way adolescence is portrayed on screen with all the trauma, grief, fear, anxiety, and how that affects all of Will's relationships in this movie is what appeals to people like myself most when seeing this film.
1: Agreed. I I... I don't even know if you would have had to have been in the same situation. I mean, this is an extreme version. In both
0: fashions. Not only is his trauma extreme, but his gifts are extreme. Yeah.
1: So it it, it almost takes it out of the realm of reality and makes it supernatural. Um, that's one of the criticisms that's been levied against the movie. It's, it seems too contrived and, and ex- the outcome expected. But I think it does have a point to be made, and it's not just math. I mean, this kid was brilliant in all areas because he could literally digest a book. And at one point, Minnie Driver asks if he's got a photographic memory, and he kind of sidesteps the statement. But obviously he does because he can remember the location of facts on pages in books. Well,
0: it's possible that he has an eidetic memory, which is perfect recall. Possible. I don't know. Either way, I don't think him having a photographic memory is necessary to the overall plot of... You have to be able to apply the information, too. It's not just being able to recall it. And there's clearly a gift for application on top of that, that... He just, with ease, all of this clicks for him in a way that it doesn't for the ordinary
1: person. So what do you think this movie is about then? It's about, it's more or less about trying to overcome your fears and let yourself commit to things and people and relationships, even though you may have every reason not to. I think it's overcoming fear is a big theme of this, of
0: making the most of your opportunities in life, of having the right support systems to take the next steps uh, in order to have the things that you want. And I say this with no offense, but in some ways, Sean becomes the perfect father figure for Will and probably the idyllic father figure for most people who've watched the movie. Okay. He's incredibly supportive. He understands trauma and grief. He's not willing to place blame, but he can also call the bullshit without necessarily making it personal. And he can drive to the heart of the matter and see underneath all of your defenses to be able to drive out what needs to be The emotion you need to have at any one particular moment. I guarantee you, almost no other therapeutic
1: relationship is going to be like that. No. It crosses so many boundaries of what a relationship in that context should be. It becomes much too intimate. And it's in large part, I mean, it becomes a point not of just Sean helping Will, but Will helping Sean and that would normally not be taking place the counselor therapist would not be revealing as much about himself as robin williams did in this film
0: probably not but i've had a few different counselors that have been fairly revealing in order to drive either a point home or to feel more accessible to me as a patient during some of my own sessions So I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility, but there's a lot of details. And also, while I think it's one of the better scenes of the movie, that monologue he has where he's just really calling him on his shit is not something you would see most therapists ever do.
1: It would would risk too much opportunity or too big of a chance of straining the relationship beyond repair. I also think
0: Will is an extraordinarily unusual situation of a patient. Not only is he a trauma victim, but he also has the ability to basically be smarter than you. And so you really can't try to outthink him or play some of these psychological games that you might with other patients. So I think it does take somebody who can stay on their toes but can also be brutally honest in order to probably help him in the ways that he needed helping. Yeah. So let's get some background on this movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us?
1: I do. When a mysterious janitor, Will Hunting, Matt Damon, at MIT, solves one of the complex math challenges for the students, Professor Gerald Lambeau, Stellan Skarsgård, seeks him out thinking he is the next Einstein. However, due to his impending jail time for assault and his clouded past of criminal activities and troubles in foster care, Will is forced to undergo psychotherapy with Dr. Sean McGuire, Robin Williams. Together, Sean and Lambeau push Will to become more than the consistent drunk delinquent he is with his friends, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, and Cole Hauser, and become the person he could be if he got out of his own way. Thank you. Cast for this movie,
0: Gus Van Sant as director, Matt Damon as Will Hunting and a writer, Ben Affleck as Chucky Sullivan and a writer, Robin Williams as Dr. Sean McGuire, Stellan Skarsgård as Professor Gerald Lambeau, Minnie Driver as Skylar, Casey Affleck as Morgan O'Malley, Cole Hauser as Billy McBride, and John Mighton as Tom. Goodwill Hunting was wide released in January nineteen ninety-eight and went on to gross one hundred and thirty-eight million in North America and two hundred and twenty five million worldwide. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards including Best Picture, Director for Vance Hand, Actor for Matt Damon, supporting actress for Minnie Driver, film editing, score for Danny Elfman, and Original Song. Goodwill Hunting won for supporting actor for Robin Williams and original screenplay for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. In 2014, it was ranked at number 53 in the Hollywood Reporter's 100 Favorite Films list. Did you know? When Matt Damon was in his fifth year at Harvard, he was in a playwriting class. The culmination of it was to write a one act play. He started writing a movie, which, with the help of Ben Affleck, became this movie. Did you know? The very first day of the shooting, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck started crying out of happiness because it was a scene between Robin Williams and Stellan Skarsgård, accomplished actors, doing Damon's and Affleck's scene verbatim, and they had waited so long, five years, for this to happen. Did you know? Matt Damon and Ben Affleck found a clever way to choose the right studio for their script. The story goes that on page 60 of the script, they wrote a completely out-of-nowhere sex scene between Will and Chucky. They took it to every major studio, and nobody even mentioned the scene. When they met with Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, he said, quote, I only have one really big note on the script. About page 60, the two leads, both straight men, have a sex scene. What the hell is that? Damon and Affleck explained that they put the scene specifically in the script to show them who actually read the script and who didn't. As Weinstein was the only person who brought it up, Miramax was the studio chosen to produce the film. Did you know? Ben Affleck was 25 when he won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for this film, making him the youngest person ever to win the award. And Matt Damon was 27 and is the second youngest person to win the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Did you know? Casey Affleck ad-libbed most of his lines. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Gus Van Sant later admitted that Casey's improvised lines were much funnier and better than what had been originally written for him. Did you know? Initially, producer Harvey Weinstein did not want Minnie Driver at all for the role of Skylar, feeling she wasn't cute enough for the part. Because Gus Van Sant, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck wanted her in the movie, Weinstein ultimately relented, and Driver went on to be nominated for a Best Actress in a Supporting Role Oscar. Did you know? When Robin Williams read the script via Francis Ford Coppola and really liked it, his one question for Coppola was, who are these guys? Did you know? In a Boston Magazine retrospective interview, Ben Affleck mentioned that he and Matt Damon wrote the part of Sean with Morgan Freeman or Robert De Niro in mind, and he and Damon would imitate their voices when reviewing the dialogue in the script. Did you know? Sean McGuire was based on Matt Damon's mother and Ben Affleck's father, kind of a synthesis of the two. Did you know? When Robin Williams and Matt Damon were shooting the scene on the bench in the public garden, it seems like they're the only people in the park. However, due to Robin Williams being a massive star, at one point, over 3,000 people were at the location watching that scene. Did you know? In 2014, after Robin Williams died, the bench in the Boston Public Garden where he and Matt Damon had their conversation scene became an impromptu memorial site. People left flowers, quotes, and various items at the bench. A petition has been passed around to erect a statue in Williams' memory near the bench. Did you know? Matt Damon was MIT's 2016 commencement speaker. He commented in his speech that it was the second time he fake graduated from there. With that, let's take our first break, and we'll be right back.
1: Okay, Dad, so who is the best performer for you? Robin Williams. Hands down. I... I There's so much, every time I watch his performance in this, I appreciate his acting ability more. He can portray such nuances in any performance that I I wish almost that there would have been times that he would have done some really heavy work. His background's in comedy, and he was an absolutely hysterical individual. But he had such talent as an actor. Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poets Society, Patch Adams. He just was so good. I thought he was particularly good in this
0: movie, and I agreed with you. He was my best performer, too. I I tried to think about some other individuals, but it always just kept coming back around because other individuals contribute more to this movie, particularly Affleck and uh, Matt Damon. But realistically, the movie is made by his portrayal. And there's such a kindness and empathy, a warmness, but he can be sharp, he can be biting, uh, he can get in your face, but it never seems off putting. He is the, honestly, he's the most charismatic as well. I really couldn't figure out another way to give anybody else because he just makes the movie. Everything about his character when he first shows up, I think that's when the movie really gets going. I don't think that there's a problem with the movie before that, but I think that's when you really start to see the difference in where this movie is. Is when you have that relationship really develop between Sean and Will, where it's kind of father-mentor-like to his potential protege. Here are the life lessons you need here are the things that have held you back to this point. Why are you not trying to extend yourself? Why are you not taking these risks? You need to move outside your comfort zone. You're too talented. And really giving him those pushes, I think particularly after the bench scene is when we really get a different side of Will. Up until that point, he's just kind of a brash, young, stupid kid, kind of like what he mentions in that speech. And I think, Past that moment, we start to see different layers of Will and what he is underneath, and that's what really develops
1: and makes the movie special.
0: Best secondary performer for you?
1: This one was tough for me. There are two aspects of secondary performance that I find both intriguing and I had hard to differentiating. One is the screenplay itself, so therefore Damon and Affleck. And the other is Gus Van Zandt uh, and the directing. There were times in this film where it should be or could be rather slow and boring because there's not a whole lot happening. But for whatever reason, he was able to maintain a certain pace of the film that didn't let you get bored. I mean, the first half of the film is all set up. It would have been real easy to lose interest about the middle of the film, and, and then, but no, he was able to keep it going and keep enough action, keep enough intrigue, keep enough pacing, changing um, camera shots, changing scenes, and doing it so that you've maintained a interest in the film. And really the film is well in before you realize how much time has elapsed.
0: I would agree to that. I don't think it's so much a pacing, although they do keep it uh, shorter scenes. Nothing is really out of the terms of conversation. It's not a lot of show. It's more tell, even though I think that that works in this particular movie. And I would say it's one of the more beautifully written scripts as far as dialogue that I can remember. There are not a lot of scripts that I really highlight for dialogue, but going through the quotes... I mean, you could have probably thought that this was an Aaron Sorkin movie by how many I could easily nominate for this film. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And so that's why I went with Damon ultimately, because one, he has to carry the movie and it's really the one where he's the first time the star and it's kind of his, I, I don't want to say Rocky moment exactly, but it's kind of similar to that and that he's the writer. He's not the director but he's the primary proponent and Star. And yes, Affleck tried, did end up having shared writing credits on this, but I think the real premise, the setup, and how it started to come about was developed by Damon and then got assistance going forward with some of the character development and the rest of that. And I don't know who contributed what to the overall writing process, but the fact that this really ended up launching his career. And I would say he had probably about three or four really good years at the back end of the 90s, being kind of a leading man heading into his kind of superstardom by the time he got to the Bourne films in the the mid-2000s or early to mid-2000s. He had a great presence on screen. He resonates in this part because I think he put enough of himself written on the page into the part. And again, I think this is one of the better developed scripts that I've seen, you know, just probably the last 20, 30 years.
1: Well, that leads into my uh, most charismatic, which is Matt Damon. I mean, you could see that he had star quality throughout the film and that he was going to do big things. All right. So then best scene... Who was your most charismatic payment to? No, I already gave mine. I didn't... Okay. Somehow I missed it. You must have, it must have been one continuous. I mentioned it when I did Best Performance. I said I really couldn't figure
0: a way to give it to anybody other than Robin Williams. Oh, okay. He dominates every scene that he's in. All right. And I think his relationship to the movie as well as to Will, he seems like the benevolent father figure to even to a certain degree still in Skarsgård in the movie and really drives most of the action. I mean, realistically, Robin Williams, by the time he comes on screen, he's dominating two of the major plot lines of the story. It's Sean and Will, it's Sean and Lambeau, and then it's Will and everybody else. And realistically, it's Will and his friends and Will and Skyler that feeds back into the Will and Sean part of the storyline. And so because he takes on so much of a presence of that, but also acts as the lead figure in both relationships, I would have to say that he has the most charisma of both of those, because I think, honestly, if there's a character in a movie that you'd want to be a part of your own life, this isn't a bad guy to choose. Okay. I understand
1: the point. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: All right, so best scenes. I was going to have a really difficult time narrowing all of these down. I think that was probably pretty obvious before we set out to do this movie, but first one I had down was Mystery Math Magician, where everybody shows up to the classroom and they don't name anybody, but kind of sets that intrigue of the original premise of this mystery genius that nobody knows about. Will defends himself, which I think is a good way of writing exposition without writing exposition. He's capable of being smart to quote property rights law from the 1700s, but he also has a rap sheet that's longer than the judge's arm. The next one I had down is I don't need therapy, which is him basically running through all of these therapists uh, and uh, (laughs) trying to antagonize them so that they will leave him alone.
1: Poor George Plimpton. Is he actually gay? I honestly don't know. Mm. He might have been. I don't know. I Not really like know.
0: it really matters, but you know, it begs the question at this late, later date and time.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I remember I, I read the book that he wrote in the, in uh, six, in the early '60s. I read it as a kid, "Paper Lion," where he uh, went to camp with the Lions as a backup quarterback, and it uh, was made into a film with Alan Alda playing Plimpton. Next scene I have down
0: is how do you like them apples? I think that's probably one of the best scenes. I mean, that's really one of the buy-in scenes for me in this movie. If, if this is on and it's like right before that scene, I just love him taking down the smart kids in the Hobbit bar. Yeah. The next one, you're just a scared kid, which is the bench scene that I mentioned a, a few times before between him and Sean. The first date with the, the blue eye shadow Game 6, 76 World Series, the story Sean tells him about meeting his wife. Ted Kaczynski, which is still just a a laugh-out-loud funny moment to me. Yeah. Retainer. (laughs) Chucky uh, improvising on the spot at uh, McNeil. If you're still here, I'll kill you, which I think is actually the real climactic moment of the movie. I know there's kind of that twist at the end if you haven't seen it before, although it's kind of predictable when everybody knows uh, or has seen the film at some point or another. But uh, to me, that see, that speech really sets up where the ending is going to go. It's not your fault, which I think is the emotional climax of the movie. And then finally, I've got to see about a girl. Okay. What do you think is the best scene? Park Bench yeah. It's really hard to beat that one. I think that's one of the great monologues in movie history, frankly.
1: And it's so simple. There wasn't any elaborate camera shots. There wasn't anything that had to be done. It didn't, there was no large flights of you know, emotion that had to be. It was just done in a way that was very subtle and innocent and open and revealing.
0: One of the things I think that makes that one particularly unique is how it's shot is that it's pretty much a close up on Robin Williams the entire time. There are a couple of reaction cutaways to Matt Damon as he's reacting, but even the small lines that he delivers during the heart of that monologue, you don't ever cut away to Matt Damon saying them. He's just saying them in the background and Williams is still just pouring his heart out like he's doing Hamlet. And I think that's what makes that particular moment or that particular scene great is the emotional resonance it ends up having with the audience because you can really see into his soul for that moment in time. And I would argue that's probably the the scene that gets him the Oscar. So favorite scene for this one? I think I would go with the same bench scene. I've rewatched that moment a lot before. If I had to nominate a second one, How Do You Like Them Apples?, I Just love that scene, but uh, those are my two favorites.
1: Well, the setup to that, which is in the bar itself, and him uh, confronting the the, uh, yuppie elitist and just putting him in his place, I just really love that because I really hate pseudo-intellectuals, people who just spout off stuff that they've read without even understanding it because... They just think it makes them sound or seem smarter? Well, I don't know how they
0: saw that far into the future, but to have the pretentious guy from Harvard be a ponytail guy?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, there were those guys at that time or even earlier, because, I mean, I was in college in the the mid-'80s, so... I don't know. There's just
0: something about anybody with, like, a man bun or a ponytail of that variety that you're just like
1: yeah you really don't need to wear your hair that long and anybody who makes a coffee order that's longer than two or three sentences i'll have a half calf decaf or with more decaf with a shot of god you clearly
0: have never made a coffee order longer than about three different pieces you know when i go
1: when i go into starbucks you know what i order. A latte? Coffee. And they look at me like, what? Yes. You want just coffee? Yes. I want just coffee.
0: Leave a little room for cream. That, that's like walk, walking up to the McDonald's menu and saying, I want a hamburger. Yeah, what's wrong with that? That two-thirds of their menu is hamburgers. Okay. Pretty much everything on the Starbucks menu is coffee. You have to be more specific.
1: Yeah, I'll say, I want coffee. They'll go, do you want it, you mean iced? No, I want coffee. So then say, a black coffee
0: and the size.
1: Yeah, and I always fumble with that too, because I can never remember what each one means, which ultimately there are three different ways of all saying large, because I think Vente is large in Italian, Grande is large in uh, Spanish. And then it's tall.
0: And it's tall. Tall is the smallest, which makes no sense to me. Grande is medium, and venti is the large. And then, depending on what type of drink you can get, you can get a trente size. A trente? Oh, and what language is trente? I have no friggin' idea. But I work with two ladies who used to work at Starbucks, so I know the menu a little bit more than, uh, the average person anymore okay so anyway
1: most indelible moment i always when i think of the film i always go back to the scene it's not your fault that was under consideration for me i think
0: that's a tough one and i don't think there's one particular moment i think You could nominate five of them and be just fine. There's not one thing that just really sticks out about the movie. And I think that's a compliment to the writing that there's probably five or six really big moments that stick with you because the whole movie is watchable. But you could have nominated uh, How About Them Apples? You could have nominated the Ted Kaczynski thing. You could have nominated that scene that you did. I ended up going with I Gotta See About a Girl. And really, it covers the bases on two fronts. It's the 76 World Series moment and really sharing how he met his wife and what she meant to him and how he for the average male fan in America to skip out on something that that would have been that meaningful. I think in today's context, it would be like I got tickets to the to a really important Super Bowl and skipped it because I saw my wife
1: across a bar. OK, I, one bit of commentary. I have never, okay, and I lived through this period. Understood why Red Sox fans hold the the Game Six with uh, with Carlton Fisk's home run in such high esteem. They ended up losing Game Seven anyway. What this you just became that close to winning, so that was good enough for a hundred years.
0: Dad, are you really that dense? I mean, yes, that's the closest they came for. A hundred years. This is 1997. They're seven years away from even knowing anything about a Red Sox championship, let alone the fact that we haven't even had the Aaron Boone home run yet. This is before Pedro Martinez's magical
1: 1999. Well, yeah, this is before... This no more before garcia the, uh, or Manny Ramirez. 78, where it was Bucky fucking Dent hit a home run over the Green Monster. And they, uh, the Yankees won that season, or was it 77 seven? Seventy-seven or 78? They won in the uh, one-game playoff for, because they were tied. So I understand to some extent, but, I mean, it's like <sighs> if you came back in a miraculous fashion
0: in what essentially is a championship game, then I could see why it's an important thing, especially when you haven't had something that's better than that.
1: I guess, but I mean <laughs> you're still lost. So,
0: if you again, if you don't have something that's better than that, I mean, what are you supposed to hold up otherwise as like your great moment in sports history? Right? Okay, let's let's take it back to 1997. You're about 10 years removed from the Celtics being any good. The Bruins haven't been good in a while. The Patriots have yet to win a Super Bowl, though they'd, though they'd just gotten to one with Bill Parcells for the second time, but lost to the Green Bay Packers, I might add. What did they really have to hang their hats on other than Game 6 in 1976? It's not like they were hanging their hat on Game 6 1986.
1: <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Billy Buck. Oh, poor guy. He made his
0: amends and his peace with Red Sox fans, I think. But he was,
1: he'll always be remembered for that. And he was a really good player. Could have happened to anybody. Well, it shouldn't have, because all season long, they'd been putting in Dave Stapleton as a defensive substitute. And for whatever reason, McNamara did not do that on that game. And it bit him. All right, well, we should probably take our second break here before we get too far. We'll be right back. Okay, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, a couple, unfortunately. Uh, Julie Cruz, American singer, she did Falling and If I Survive, but uh, she also was an actress on Twin Peaks when that show was on, and uh, she passed this last week. And then a name that most people will not have recognized, but if you look at this guy's photo, just look him up, you'll go, oh, that guy, because he's been on everything for 50 years. I remember when he used to do guest spots on Barney uh, Miller and on Night Court in the late 70s, early 80s. But Philip Baker Hall passed away at age 90. Uh, He was in Magnolia, Zodiac, Rush Hour. Um, He was on Seinfeld. He was on, I mean, tons of stuff. I think when I looked at his filmography, he only stopped working like within the last year. He was in such stuff as Boogie Nights. He was in Modern Family.
0: He was in Bruce Almighty, The Truman Show. He's got such a long pedigree. Midnight Run, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Amityville Horror, The Sum of All Fears. I mean, he's in probably so many things that
1: you're like, oh, I've seen that guy before. I mean, it's to the point where because you have a speaking line under the actor's regulations, you have residuals. He he probably gets like, was getting like thousands of checks every week with small amounts because some show or some movie he was in, 12 years ago is showing on netflix so he he's an actor who used his voice and looks to uh, be a special character actor and was prolific and i would assume made a pretty decent living for himself
0: and so we remember these two for their contributions to the arts
1: and we'll miss them going forward with a moment of silence Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. Sean,
0: you're not perfect sport. And let me save you the suspense. This girl you've met, she's not perfect either. But the question is whether or not you're perfect for each other. Sean, it's not your fault. Will see the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking of your own. And you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped a hundred and fifty grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. Yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at the drive-through on our way to a skiing trip. Yeah, maybe, but at least I won't be unoriginal. Son of a bitch, he stole my line. Skylar, maybe we could go out for coffee sometime. Well, Great, or maybe we could get together and just eat a bunch of caramels. What? Well, when you think about it, it's just as arbitrary as drinking coffee.
1: Hey, Jerry. In the 1960s, there was a young man that graduated from the University of Michigan, did some brilliant work in mathematics, specifically bounded uh, harmonic functions. Then he went to Berkeley. He was an assistant professor, showed amazing potential. Then he moved to Montana and blew the competition away. Yeah, so who was he? Lambo says. Sean, Ted Kaczynski. By the way, I've been inside his cabin. It's a
0: little creepy. <laughs> yeah. Will, do you like
1: apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? Will, to Sean. I read your book last night. Sean, so you're the one. Sean. You'll have bad times, but it'll always wake you up to the good stuff you weren't paying attention to. Sean to uh, Gerald, he pushes people away before they get a chance to leave him. It's a defense mechanism. And for 20 years, he's been alone because of that. And if you push him right now, it's going to be the same thing all over again. And I'm not going to let that happen. Chucky, look,
0: you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way, but. In 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house, watching the Patriots games, working construction, I'll fucking kill you. That's not a threat. That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What the fuck are you talking about? You got something none of us have. Oh, come on. What? Why is it always this? I mean, I fucking owe it to myself to do this or that. What if I don't want to? No, 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 no. Fuck you. You don't owe it to yourself, man. You owe it to me. Because tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'll be 50 and I'll still be doing this shit. And that's alright. That's fine. I mean, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. And you're too much of a pussy to cash it in. And that's bullshit. Because I'd do fucking anything to have what you got. So would any of these fucking guys. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. Hanging around here is a fucking waste of your time.
1: If you've got more, go ahead. eh?
0: Okay. Will. Beethoven, okay? He looked at a piano and it just made sense to him. He could just play. So what are you saying? You play the piano? No, not a lick. I mean, I look at a piano, I see a bunch of keys, three pedals and a box of wood. But Beethoven, Mozart, they saw it. They could just play. I couldn't paint you a picture. I probably can't hit the ball out of Fenway. And I can't play the piano. But you can do my organic chemistry paper in under an hour. Right. Well, I mean, when it came to stuff like that, I could always just play. Are you out? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, so we'll finish up with Tom's continuing saga of movie monologues. Sean, so if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favorites. You may have even been late a few times, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid, and I'd ask you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more unto the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help, I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with just her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, to be there forever, through anything, through cancer... And you wouldn't know about sleeping sitting up in the hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And look at you. I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you but you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and you ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? You think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that because you know what? I can't learn anything from you I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you, who you are, Then I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. Your move, Chief. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. First or second? I'll go second. All right. I really tried to play around with this one, but I think given who we're dealing with, whose careers went on to be much bigger as a result of this movie. All of the things that I think have direct connections to this movie. It has to be a five for me for industry. I mean, you're talking about three big careers, both of the Affleck brothers and Damon, who all have Academy Awards at this point, two for this movie, but one for another one. And at least two major Hollywood celebrity careers, and it cemented another one by giving Robin Williams his much-deserved Oscar. Continued the big rise for Miramax films as an industry player in the 90s, and has been one of the most known films of most of these people's careers. The problem I would see is that I couldn't give it a much higher than a 3.5 for the audience, and part of that is it's waned over time a bit. As much as I love this movie, it's not one that I think like any of my friends will have seen. I think if you mention it to people that have had an education, that watch a lot of movies, that this is probably something that they've seen. But I think maybe under the age of 30, you're going to get a fairly steep drop off, despite the fact that this was a fairly popular movie and that this is available in a lot of different places on like Netflix or Prime pretty much continuously. So it's not like it's a movie that you can't access or can't watch if you don't want to. I just don't think it's really of the moment right now in a way that it was during the 90s. And while I think most people probably know the name of the film or know some of the names of the people that are in this, or maybe have heard a quote, like I'm sure somebody at some point, even in their uh, somebody who's maybe 20 has heard, how do you like them apples at some point? Because that's been an ongoing phrase for as long as I can remember. But While you constantly throw out the anecdotal comparisons to your group of friends, I'll throw out mine. There are so many people in my circle of friends that don't watch movies at all. And if they've seen anything, it's probably something like an Avengers movie. So this is just not something that I think any of them would know anything about or really be able to tell me anything about. And as a result, I can only go
1: 3.5 on this. So that's an 8.5 overall. I have a five for industry as well. And I think you also missed, I'm trying to remember offhand, I didn't look it up how many other films Van Zandt's has done, but I think it really helped or moved his career forward as well. So I, for that reason I, and all the other reasons you give, I'll say five for industry. I think your 3.5 is even a little too high. I wavered at th- coming up this high. I give it a three because it is not a film that a lot of people talk about or think about or mention. And not just your age group, which I think is really probably poignant, but even my age group where we were young adults when this film was released, we don't talk about it all that much. It was a great film at its time, and I think – there are probably a lot of situations where people my age don't necessarily just turn it on. The people who really love this film tend to be those who love films in general and generally watch a lot of films. And so I can't give it anything more than a three. So that's an eight total. So that's an 8.25 between us. For the point on Gus
0: Van Sant, he has directed only, a, I guess, a handful of Major movies that people might have heard of. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is not something that you're aware of, but it's a Kevin Smith movie. Then he directed Milk, which was nominated for Best Picture, I think about 2008, won Sean Penn his second Best Actor Oscar. He also directed the Psycho remake in 1998 with Vince Vaughn, but he hadn't, or he has not done a lot of major movies after this. And that's why I didn't really include him as compared to Ben Affleck or Matt Damon, who have had like notable star power careers. He's kind of middling at best, but I mean, he's had at least a successful enough career partially on the back of this movie. Sure. That leads us into impact significance for some of the same reasons And I ended up, again, it is a five for the industry. It launched two of the biggest stars of the last 20 years. Gave Robin Williams his much-deserved Oscar. I mean, you have Stellan Skarsgård, Damon Affleck, Casey Affleck. They've all probably been dining out in this movie for probably two decades at this point. But I went a four for audience. While it was a big indie hit of the 90s, that was more common at the time. I mean, Miramax pretty much made its living on these kind of indie films that they'd get nominated for Oscars and that people would see kind of like the Tarantino movies of the mid to late nineties, or I'm trying to think of some of their other big hits at the time, but it was also competing in a year where Titanic blocked out the sun for audience awareness, attention, and dollars. So if you're just even comparing that year and other films that were up for awards That movie pretty much drowned everybody else out, and so I can't give it a five in its time. I ended up at a four for a nine overall.
1: Okay. I'm going to differentiate just a bit with you again. I'll give a five again for impact, but 4.5. One thing Miramax did is Miramax recognized that films did not have to have draws at the theater to make money. They understood that uh, the rental industry was rising and that people, uh, especially like me, I mean, I was in my, probably my late thirties or early forties with small children. We wanted to have films that we could watch at home. And that really had an impact. It was, if I remember right, you know, in the, the video stores, you could tell how popular a film was for rental by the number of cassettes they had on the shelf. And I want to say they had something like 10 or 15 for Good Will Hunting. It was the film that ever, no one saw at the theater in my age group, but everybody wanted to see. And so it had a real buzz going around it within that first couple of years of its release. Everybody wanted to watch it on video. So I went with a 4.5.
0: I guess the rental community doesn't have as much staying power. It's not something that we're cognizant of in this modern age with streaming in the same way. So I guess that might be a blind spot for me. But it's not like this was an unsuccessful movie. If you adjust it for inflation, its worldwide gross would be over $411 million, which would be
1: a amazing success for a movie nowadays. Yeah, but I would—I'd be curious to see exactly how much uh, rentals also made. Well, I'm sure it made quite a bit, and then DVD or VHS sales
0: later on. I mean, which yeah. adds to the rentals. I think those numbers were always a little bit inflated by the rentals, but yeah, I—I I, I can understand your point. So that's a 9.25 average between us. Novelty. I think this helped make therapy and psychiatric or psychiatry more acceptable, even if it wasn't the first big representation of mental health on screen. It's hard for me to go back into 1997 because I was seven years old, but I think at the time there was still a large taboo. And even until the last few years, there pretty much has still been a large taboo on mental health and discussing trauma, grief that we're still dealing with as just a general culture or society. And as such, I think this gets points up just for that because it showed there could be good relationships and positive developments out of therapy in a way that I don't think was often used in other films. I mean, the most significant, I think therapeutic relationship or mental therapy relationship that I can think of before this would have been maybe ordinary people from 1980. That's almost a tragic relationship. And it's, really rooted in sadness, whereas this one almost has a triumphant ending to it. And so I think that makes it somewhat more novel in just that. It's also a film that is set and really feels like it is from an authentic place that isn't Los Angeles or New York, which for 1990s America was pretty unique. (laughs) I I think that is a big part of why this film has appeal, too, is that it, it feels different than the average, okay, we're set in New York, we're set in L.A. again. But I'll add in the beautifully written script for this one as far as the dialogue goes, and
1: so I'll go with an eight on this. I struggled with this uh, a lot because it seems like it's a story that's been told dozens of times before, but yet I couldn't put my finger on a film that it had. And I'm still—I I have a number down, and I'm still waffling in my mind as to whether that's the number I wanted to stick to. I, I'm gonna—I'm gonna go seven point five. I had—I—I I had an eight, but I, what's made me kind of reduce it is because the ending was so predictable. But I think that provides a level of authenticity. I know
0: people criticize it for that. But sometimes it's the ending that needs to happen, and it wouldn't have felt reasonable for him to go any other way.
1: Yeah, I, I understand, and I'll but I'll stick to the. Do you need to get the math.
0: No, it's a seven point seven five average between us. Okay. Classicness. Now, before we get too far into this one, let's just start with the obvious conversation we need to have. Does seeing the Miramax label on something color your perception of the movie overall?
1: It, it had to. I mean,
0: every um, time the Miramax or the Weinstein Company label, especially a Weinstein
1: Company label, pops up on something, I'm like, oh yeah, oh okay. Somebody put on TikTok clips from the from the Academy Awards for multiples with multiple stars uh, giving homage to uh, Harvey <laughs> sitting out in the audience, and you just want to cringe. I'm like, well, but realistically, there are a bunch of A-list people that
0: really owe him their careers. The problem is, is they're probably all men. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino was joined at the hip with Miramax and the Weinstein Company. You could say that Damon and Affleck wouldn't be anywhere near the careers that they have or have any careers if they don't get this movie made. And he made that happen and he helped produce and finance several of their other projects. So it's not as if he wasn't talented or had ability. The problem is, is he was a bully and really used his power in ways that were extremely harmful as much as they occasionally benefited people.
1: I'll go one step further. Criminally. Criminally.
0: Yeah, okay. I I should have added that, and I, I apologize for not, because that is a big
1: note to add
0: in this particular
1: sense. I mean, this is malicious. He purposely sought out and recruited actresses that he thought he could abuse. Yes, absolutely. And I think once
0: I get into the heart of the movie, I can separate out the parts of me that would be a little bit disgusted by it, because... I think him not being on screen, like, I think it's different than when eventually we're going to cover like a Kevin Spacey movie because he's on screen and you have to deal with that specifically.
1: But this yeah. is him in the background. When when this all came out, I was <laughs> extremely hurt and offended because... To me, Weinstein was the representative of people like us who really love films that have quality and aren't just trying to be big, big name films. And then he does this stuff, and it just—I felt betrayed. I'd be very careful with how you wanted to
0: phrase that one. I don't think it—you meant it in the way that it might sound. I don't think he was representative of us, but he gave us people who like quality movies something that was a little bit out of the mainstream that wasn't being produced by the average studio or company. I mean, the films that he was producing with Tarantino or I'm trying to think of some of the other big collaborations that he had, but you know, he, I think he produced something like the King's speech. Those
1: movies aren't made anywhere else. Correct. And, and it's a shame that somebody who is that sinister, that slimy ultimately uh, ended up being the person who was making those films. I, I would, I, I just wish somebody would come forward and have the vision and heart to produce these films and to make these films again, these indie films, and doesn't have a problem uh, abusing his power and keeping his fly up. Well. But I I think that's the canary in the coal mine, if you're
0: looking for that in Hollywood. I mean, we just talked about a movie last week with the infamous Jack Warner. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Lest we forget uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Yeah. I mean, studio executives in Hollywood abusing their power is about as commonplace as a hamburger at McDonald's. Yeah. So... I guess where I was trying to go with this is are you going to potentially
1: drop points for
0: that just for having that label on it?
1: No, because the footprint of Miramax at the time was so huge in the movie industry that if you did that on all the films it it would not be justified. I'm not trying to minimize this in any way because what he did was horrible and deserves to have been uh, both what ended up happening to him, if not more. He should have been put in prison. He is in prison. Uh, is he in prison? I didn't. He has th- a
0: long prison sentence. He okay. was convicted in New York.
1: Okay. Anyway, um, I'm not trying to minimize any of that, but this kind of almost is like the steroid era in baseball. It's like, it's so permeated things at that time, you just, you can't give it, Yeah, it existed and you can make note of it, but I don't know if you can completely wipe it out. So I can't give it a real reduction because of who produced the film. Well,
0: and I guess where I'll come down on this, is it's different and more easily separable for me or for a compartmentalization. And maybe I shouldn't be able to do this, but it's how I tend to feel and think about it. And I I can be wrong on this. I I really can. And I accept criticism potentially if somebody feels that I'm I'm not right on it, but him not being on screen or not a major role within the making of the movie itself, just being the producer. I know that that has a significant role unto itself, but not, you know, it's not the director. It's not the editor. It's not the cinematographer. Even it's not the first AD. It's not one of the principal actors, makes me even more easily able to separate out his poor behavior from the results of everybody else in the movie. So I didn't really grade it down either for that. So I'll grade this on its merits, just on that part of it. The writing is outstanding and is still some of the best dialogue you'll ever get in a movie. The pacing, editing, cinematography, and set designs are still all top notch. This was done on a shoestring budget, but doesn't really feel like a shoestring budget. And some of those therapy scenes are just so rewatchable for me. Really, the only thing that hasn't aged well in this movie, and it distracts me every time I watch this movie, is Matt Damon's haircut. Otherwise, I'll give this an eight.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I really, I mean, it, it tends to be more, male-centric as, as far as a theme, but even having Minnie Driver in here who was a fairly strong, significant character in this film, you you have to say that at least the female there was a female aspect of this that shouldn't be a big markdown, And unless you think about the portrayal of the uh, South Boston uh, citizenry as being kind of unskilled, thuggerish as being kind of stereotype, that would be the only thing uh, that I would have any on. So I, I went with a nine, actually. Well, I can't even knock down the
0: notion of whether they were authentic to Southie Boston, even though I don't know if either of them comes from that part of Boston specifically. But it feels like we're from here so we can get away with it kind of thing, kind of like Richard Pryor making... Black jokes. Yes. So you had a 9, I had an 8, so that's an 8.5 average between us. Rewatchability. This is not quite a Desert Island movie for me, but it is damn close, and I can watch this at any starting point whenever it is on. So I split the baby a little bit. I went with a 9.75.
1: I enjoy the film, and it's not necessarily one of my favorites, and I don't know actually why. Maybe to some part or to some extent, it doesn't it doesn't speak to me as much as it should, because at one point in time, maybe I, you know, it's my own psychoanalysis, well, at least my self psychoanalysis, I was at one point in time Mad Damon, and I just didn't let the fear bother me and did stuff. I probably, in retrospect, was like, boy, I was a really stupid kid. Just thought I could just do this or do that or do whatever. So maybe to that extent, it doesn't really resonate with me as much as it does some people. So to that extent, yes, it's a film I will watch. If I see it on every two years, three years, I'll put it on if it's on streaming and I don't have anything else that I really am interested in watching on a given night, or I just need to put something on and I'm sitting there just kind of venging out. So for that reason, I went with a 7.5. All right. Do you need help with the math on that? Sure. So, huh, what is that? 8.5? No. Oh, uh, Okay. So I guess, I guess you have to help me with the math. 8.63. All right. So with the audience score, we had a 93
0: for Google users and a 94 for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.35. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.25 for Legacy, 9.25 for Impact Significance, 7.75 for Novelty, 8.5 for Classicness, 8.63 for rewatchability and a 9.35 for audience score, giving us a total of 51.70.73. Okay. And that would currently place it on the list. Tied with Three Idiots. Huh. Oh. Okay. Well, and honestly, that's not a bad film to be compared to. It's another oh. kind of adolescence film. It's a buddy film. It's Figuring out your life, it's a genius that's misunderstood. Yeah. So I, I think they have a lot of similarities. It would be an interesting tiebreaker uh, when we finally got around to that one. Okay. So remaining questions then for this movie. I think there are a couple of obvious ones. The first being, especially where the movie leaves off, does Will find Skylar? It's not like you can look
1: her up on Facebook yet. <laughs> it wouldn't take that much. It really wouldn't. I think it I think he would. And I think it would be real fairly simple for him. He's pretty bright. That's true. I, I suppose I hadn't counted that in. And she would have had a landline, so
0: information. Oh yeah, but, I suppose on the phone book, but how soon would
1: that have been registered? She just had moved there. But you don't look in the phone book, you look on you call information. So no. you guys don't remember that. Used to no, be in- we certainly don't. Yes, used to be that you could call information and information would go would give you the numbers. So anybody who has a phone that's been installed within the last like day would be on the uh, would be on the list for information and they could give you the phone number. So you could also call and get the time and weather. Oh, what a brilliant age you lived in. Yes, it was quite quite remarkable. Yeah. Just
0: wondering how you guys survived.
1: Well, you know, we're lucky we, they invented fire right before us. All right. So the other two obvious questions I have is whether Will
0: will ever see Sean or ever see Chucky again. Hard to know. Sean, I think is more likely than Chucky. I think so too. With how the movie ends and the way he uses that speech, To basically say, I wish someday that you just aren't there. I think it would be doing him a disservice to just show back up at some point. Yeah. But Sean, I think with the mentorship type of situation that they had going on and kind of how he's become his surrogate father, that would make
1: more sense to me as somebody he'd actually try and stay in touch with. I could see somebody like Sean being the best man in a wedding. Well, I was thinking maybe the Godfather. Possibly. And then my third
0: and final question is something that's really not related exactly to the movie. I mean, it is, but it's more of a philosophical question. Is actually knowing what you want in life one of life's great gifts? the amount of people that I've talked to that are kind of in adolescence. And that's why I think this movie doesn't relate to you as much as you didn't see it when you were in this kind of like 18 to 30 year old mark. And that's where I think I saw the movie for the first time where you have all these question marks of what my life's going to be. And am I going to feel like a failure or am I going to actually make something out of my life? And so a lot of the pieces of this movie really fit together to, relate to somebody going through that at the time and so because you saw that afterward i just don't think it means the same to you as it does to me but the amount of people that i talk to that just have no idea what they want from their life i don't know if i can blame them for not knowing but i have to imagine that knowing what exactly what you want has to be one of life's great great gifts
1: okay i'm gonna correct you it's not because the person who knows what they really want is wrong. No one knows what they really want. They think they may, they may think they know what they want, but things change. Things morph. Things, events and situations come up. That's changing due to circumstances. That's not, not knowing what you want. Okay. What you, what you know what you want is, is knowing that there's always – this is the key to this – Okay. It's acting, knowing that this is more or less what you want. You're not sure. It's the ability to act and take steps because you think that's what you should be doing. But the uncertainty does not prevent you from doing it. That's the key. If you, if you have to, if you're acting only when you're certain about things, you'll never act. It's coming to the the uh, acceptance that you're going to act because with what I know and what I think I understand and where I am now, that's what I want to do. And I know that it may be wrong, but I also know that even though it may be wrong, I can probably change my mind or take a diversion if it doesn't work the way I think it should that's the success of life that's the key to the success of life is being able to understand that it may not be right and you can act regardless
0: and see i just fundamentally disagree with that entire portion because i think that you can know what you want and then take active steps toward it regardless of any certainty or not and that sometimes knowing what you want is the only way where you can make active decisions to try and put yourself in a position to getting the things that you want. And thus why I think it's one of life's great gifts is having that comfort of knowing that you're actually acting towards getting what you
1: want. From most of my life, from about the age of five, I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. A little deviation in my early times, but I had no guarantees that I was going to be any good at it, but I made this decisions and acted based upon what I knew and what I understood. So what so, you're saying is, is you knew what you wanted out of life, and then made active choices to get to that goal. But I didn't know if it was going to work. So you knew I what you appreh- wanted. I, I couldn't be apprehensive about going forward with it. So in other words, you're proving my point. But okay. Maybe it's just we're not we're talking two different things from different angles.
0: Okay, so it'd be a conversation between my mother and grandfather.
1: uh yeah anyway nothing more than my inside joke
0: uh, folks sorry about that so not enough time this week for other thoughts that'll do it for us this week thank you for listening and thank you for joining us where are you headed cowboy nowhere special nowhere special I always wanted to go there Next week, we'll be covering my sister Allison's favorite movie with her for her birthday, Mary Poppins from 1964, directed by Robert Stevenson, written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like subscribe. Follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmote Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is Thanks to Purple Planet. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FF.